Well, welcome back. Let's pray, and uh, we're going to dig into uh, some more of Romans 9. Uh, this, the psalm for today, 129, uh, a psalm of a sense. This one, I think, very much has that feeling of um, pilgrimage and um, just really this, I don't know, there's, there's an angst and a, um, a feeling of being torn, of living in this world and looking forward to something better. I, that's part of what I got here anyhow. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. A um, couple of things. Uh, any of that sound kind of familiar? Maybe that verse about with you there is forgiveness that you may be it's usually translated feared. Is that some? Yes? Yeah? No? It's often in our liturgy, right? And I think that that's one of the things that um, in terms of the way that we conduct our services and stuff like that it, um, different churches handle what happens on Sunday morning differently, right? Um, I, you know, you've got a experience going to Orthodox churches, you know, this big, rich, you know, it, yeah, um, liturgical hit, uh, heritage, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, um, rich Luth uh, liturgical uh, backgrounds. Lutherans don't always embrace it as much as uh, some of the others do. Um, but this is one of the things that I love about liturgy is that if you go through the liturgy, everything really comes from the Bible or is tied back to it at some point or another. Um, and, uh, and what I like about that is that it's like, you know, we wanna make sure that we really put our feet on solid ground uh, when we come into God's house. And, and, you know, we learn to speak back to him from how he uh, speaks to us. And so I find great value in that. Um, this is one of those psalms that, you know, it's, it's just, it's great for confession, um, and it's great for, uh, just really kind of positioning ourselves in terms of how we look at who, uh, who brings redemption and salvation into our lives. And I think it fits really well with what we're going to get into eventually here, as it talks about Israel, uh, putting their hope in the Lord and, uh, God redeeming Israel and the question that Romans 9 is going to force us to look into is, who's that? So, uh, a couple of things, uh, I guess, first of all, any insight, word, comfort, challenge from last week that's uh, worth bringing up? Anything from last week's session that impacted your life? Confession. Say that again? Confession. Confession, okay. All right, anything else? Every time I read about the Israelites being stubborn, I, I cringe 
because I know I would have been one of them. <laughs> I wouldn't like this person coming in and upsetting my church. Okay. They were grumbling and complaining before Jesus, though. Yeah, all the way from Egypt. Right, but I, I know I would have been messed up. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good point of confession too, because um, a lot of times, uh, C.S. Lewis talked about being chronological snobs. You know, we look at the past and we say, "Well, if I had been there, I certainly would have handled it the right way." You know, yeah. no, probably not. Uh, probably would have tripped where everybody else did too. Um, you know, so, no, that's a good recognition. Um, anything else? All right, then I want to go back to verses 1 through... I think sometimes we have that as Missouri City Lutherans too. <laughs> no. <laughs> the, the, the greatest sin in Missouri Synod Lutheranism is change. So, yeah. <laughs> And that is, that is kind of a difficult thing because we have things that are genuinely really good that we should not change. On the other hand, there are some things that are really open to a lot of freedom and then we're digging in our heels and we're like, mm -mm, not going to do it, you know. And that is, I think that's one of the challenges for churches that have a lot of tradition. You know, that if there's a lot of tradition um, that has formed our background, then, it, you know, how do, how, do you, how do you navigate that as the world changes? Because the world's not the same way that it was in the 1500s when, you know, Luther and Melanchthon and, you know, and Calvin and all these others were, you know, leading the Reformation. You know, and... Uh, um, you know, how do you make sure that you hold on to the things that are truly treasure and feel free to kind of handle the other things a little bit more loosely? That's hard sometimes. So, anybody want to add anything, say anything about that? All right, I'm going to jump into Romans then. Romans 9, 1 through 5, um, just a couple of things I want to pick up from, uh, from last time. Uh, Paul starts this out, he says, I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, um, that word is anathema, we talked about that last week, and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. Uh, a couple of things that... Uh, uh, jumped out at me uh, when I was doing research for this week. Um, this idea of the giving of the law uh, as, as a gift that God gave to the Israelites. Um, I don't think we usually think about the law that way. 
You know, we often think of the law as a burden. It's the thing that always accuses us. It always um, shows us where we're doing things wrong. But I'd like for you to think for a moment you know, about the Ten Commandments and how they actually lay out for us because uh, you know, they're recorded for us in the scriptures in two places. The first is in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. They are word for word exactly the same in both books. Even in the Hebrew, word for word, exactly the same, okay? Um, and uh, Exodus chapter 20 starts this way. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Do not have other gods beside me. How do you hear verse 2? Do you hear verse 2? I am the Lord your God, and I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you up out of slavery, and you better not have any other gods. Or do you hear it? Hey, folks, remember me? I am the Lord your God. I am the one who brought you up out of Egypt. I'm the one that rescued you. I'm the one that saved you. Now let's talk about how you're going to live. I'm the only God that can actually rescue you. So don't have any other gods. Little, little difference there? Yeah. When he starts by identifying himself as the, the God who brought them up out of Egypt and the, brought them up out of slavery, he's actually starting with the gospel. He's saying to them, I am your savior. And if I'm your savior, then some other things in your life are going to change too. But it starts with, I saved you. Remember that? Remember? That was me. I saved you. you know, and uh, um, you know, as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, it's you know, pretty clear that it's not because well, you did all these great things. No, you were slaves um, and uh, didn't have anything really to offer. I chose you. I saved you. You're my people. Do not have any other gods. I would like to share some of, some of, the, some of the thoughts regarding that. Uh, that is very important that um, uh, that worship one and only God because um, I mean, uh, I involved in the Lutheran campus ministry and that's how I got to meet and meet like different people from different cultures, from different religions. And they share their faith, they share their thoughts and stuff. Um, Every, every other religion except Christianity, they proclaim that they have like different gods because because uh, they wanted to they wanted to take control of the human being and the and the way they want to take control of the human being is to uh, play with their emotions, play with their needs. Each and every religion we talk about Buddhism, we talk about Hinduism, whatever religion is that except Christianity. They have a God for money, they have a God for health, they have a God for wealth. So that's how basically like, um, uh, mankind has been created a lot of like, man-made gods and tried to like, harm us. And which is why I think that, that verse where, 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 uh, where the Bible says that um, he brought us out from the land of Egypt, it's, 
kind of like an analogy that yes, God has saved us from all these um, valueless belief, which make no sense. And um, very recently, I talked with the very recently I was giving me and my mom we were giving a ride. We were giving we were helping a person who is from India, and we were giving her a ride to the airport. And on our way, uh, we were like, talking up, talking with each other. And I just got to know that she is she is a I just got to know that they worship they have like thirty three thousand dollars. I was like, how come thirty three thousand dollars? They have gone for ill, they have gone for will, they have gone for air, they have gone for water, they have gone for <laughs> fire, they have gone for sun. So, um, we are so much privileged that uh, in the Bible, God has already told us and proclaimed us and given us the promise that there is no other God except me. And make sure that you only worship uh, the God. So we don't get distracted or we don't get confused and let not let other people not take advantage of our weakness. Yeah, and when we worship the one true God, you know, it, it isn't just that he's better than these other ones or you know any of those things, but he is the God who actually brings salvation to us. And so our relationship with him is rooted first and foremost in his forgiveness and his life. Uh, and salvation that, that he provides to us. So even when you read through the rest of the commandments, um, there are no imperative verbs there. You know, there are no commands, literally. You know, so he's saying, I've saved you. You're not going to have other gods. And then you just work your way through the rest of them. And what he's in a lot of ways, doing is he is describing what you look like when you live in the gospel. When your hearts are transformed by uh, his love and his salvation. And what's really important about this is as we think about Israel, a lot of times I think we think that um, Israel's relationship with God was about the law and doing all the things and now that we're Christians, we're set free from the law, and you know, no, it's about God's grace and his mercy now. It's always been about his grace and his mercy. Even the Ten Commandments are given out of God's grace and his mercy. And so when he talks about these rich gifts, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, you know, the giving of the law, this is an act of God's love and his, his compassion on his people here, too. So uh, uh, that, that was immediately after the, the golden calf, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, technically he gave it before yes. when they were up on the mountain, right? And then he comes down and, you know. But yeah, these are spoken after the golden calf. Um, which, it is interesting if you look at like Canaanite gods, how many of them have bull or, you know, some kind of, you know, uh, attribute of some kind of bovine character um, and many of the Egyptian gods did too and uh, um, you know one of the big things that God was doing is he's separating them from the nations right these are my people you know so that they would draw others to him and they're like I know what we should do we should make God look just like us 
You know, and even later, um, you know, so you've got this incident with the, uh, the golden calf. But when the kingdoms split, you know, the northern kingdom sets up uh, in Samaria uh, um, an idol, and it is a golden calf. You know, and I, I don't know what it is about cows in particular, but, you know, uh, they, uh, um, they lose sight of, no, Israel, your relationship with me is about my compassion on you and my mercy and grace for you. And it's not about you doing all the things and offering the right sacrifices. And, you know, it, it really is focused on state, uh, solidly placed in his grace and in his mercy. And then that's what's extended to us in Christ. That mercy and that grace and that compassion becomes ours. So then the law becomes a gift that is given to us. Not that it would be a burden for us, but in the sense that it teaches us how to live as redeemed people. Making sense? Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting about this section uh, Romans 9 through 11. Uh, this little section that we read, these first five verses, they end with what is called the doxology. Um, doxology, it comes from the, uh, the Greek uh, doxa, which means glory. And so you know, it's, it's a way of praising and glorifying God. And here it says, Christ, the one, the one being God. It's a, it's a, a participle. You know, so Christ, who is God, uh, over all, um, be praised, who is praised, blessed, uh, and that's an adjective for all ages, amen. And uh, it's really clear that Paul is describing Jesus as God. He's saying this is God. And I think that it's important to notice that the word uh, praised or blessed, depending upon how you translate that, is an adjective because um, it, it isn't about what we're doing. You know, He's praised and blessed, whether we praise and bless him or not. Uh, this is part of his, his, his essence. And uh, when he says, you know, praised and blessed here, uh, it's a matter of our recognition. Now, we're at the very beginning of this three-chapter segment. And if you jump to the very end of it, in chapter 11, um, it says this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So literally what Paul has done is he has begun this section with a doxology, praising Jesus. And he ends it with a doxology, praising the Father. And it kind of brackets the, the, the section here. And it, it's all about this, this recognition of, of God's love and his mercy. And there's a really important word in both of those doxologies that we use a lot, that sometimes I think we almost use like punctuation, that it's, I think, worth thinking about. What does this mean? And that's the word, Amen. If you've been to church already this morning, you've probably said amen at least a half a dozen times. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, in the worship service, it, it kind of feels like just 
you know, okay, that's the end of that part. Let's move on to the, the next thing here. But amen is a, an actual word. Uh, you know, it, and it comes to us from Hebrew. Um, the, uh, my Hebrew professor was convinced that when we get to heaven, we will speak Hebrew, by the way. Um, it's the language of the Old Testament. Maybe Adam and Eve spoke it even. I don't know. Um, but uh, that's, that's, you see, if I'd been smarter and a better student, maybe that brought that up. Because <laughs> that's the language Jesus spoke. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, this word that we use at the end of our prayers, that we use at the end of uh, the creed, you know, I usually say it at the end of the sermon. It's like, you know, the end. You know, amen, right? Um, um, it, it translates this Hebrew word that, that transliterates the, 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 this Hebrew word that sounds exactly the same. And amen means truly, surely. And depending upon how it's formed in Hebrew, it can also mean to believe. So when you say surely, it's kind of like saying, I believe that's going to happen, right? Um, and so this is, this is a faith word, amen. It, it's, it's a word that says, you know, I believe. Uh, and Paul uses it to emphasize um, that in that first one, that he believes that Jesus is the, the Christ. And therefore, he is the, the Savior. Um, and that is the key matter of this book. You know, in, in 116, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, right? That, that's really what's at the, 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 the heart and the core of this book, believing that Jesus is the Savior who has come uh, for us to rescue and to redeem us. Um, and to that end, I think it's probably worth our time to think about how we say that word when we're praying, when we're in worship. You know, when we get to the... Uh, um, when we, when I pronounce the uh, the absolution, and you say Amen, what are you saying? I believe it. I believe my sins are forgiven. You know, um, the uh, uh, in baptism, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And often we'll say Amen. I believe. I believe what God is doing here. Uh, the small catechism in the section on, on the section on no on the Lord's Lord's Prayer talks about this word, and uh, um, you know Luther says Amen when you say Amen it's yea yea it shall be so. You know it's this word of confidence. I believe God's going to do this, or or I believe God has done this. Any Star Trek fans out there? This is Picard. Make it so. You know, it's just this word of confidence. I believe this is going to happen. Um, you know, and so whether it is at the end of the Apostles' Creed, you know, it starts with I believe and you end with Amen. I believe, I believe. Or whether it's the prayers, you know, when you say Amen to the end of that long list of prayers that, at least when I was a kid, I used to fall asleep during it, you know, kind of like, 
uh, where am I? I don't know. Um, when you say amen at the end of that, you're saying, God, everything that was just said there, that's what I, you know, yes. I believe that you would do these things. Make it so. You know, so it's not a small word to, you know, just toss around. It's, it's a word with a lot of meaning in it. Um, and uh, I think one worth, uh, worth thinking about. Anything else about amen? Because I can blather on forever. Um, in that case, I want to look at Romans 9 um, and uh, move on a little bit further. And this next section of Romans 9, um, it, it, it has an interesting format to it. Uh, classically, this is called um, a chiasm. In other words, it's a X. Have you ever seen the symbol in, in church? You know, I always call it the PX, right? Um, it, the right word for that is the Cairo, um, and Chi is the uh, the Greek letter that looks like an X, and Rho is the letter that looks like a P. Yeah, you know, so we call it the PX, and it's actually the the other way around. Um, uh, but it's the Cairo, and these are the first two letters of Christ. So it's a form of shorthand, actually. And just as a point of absolute trivia. Have you ever heard anybody who gets really offended at Christmas time when they put X mess? Yes. Did you know it was Christians that started that? <laughs> Not because they're trying to X out Christ, but because it is it's the first letter of his name in Greek. You know, so it's shorthand. And actually, when you, uh, uh, when you read uh, a lot of the old uh, manuscripts, they have a, a variety of little shorthands like that, where you know, they'll, they'll shorten um, Jesus. Uh, on, on the front of the altar, um, when there's no pyramid that's hanging there, there are three letters, IHS. I tell the kids every year that it stands for Jerusalem because you know, Latin doesn't have a J, it has the I, high school, because that's where Jesus went to high school. <laughs> and they, they kind of pause on that one, and they're like, wait, really? <laughs> but really, it is shorthand for the first three letters of Jesus. You know, so you would pronounce it yes. Um, so Jesus, why would we put that on our altar? Well, Jesus is the one who was slain on God's altar for the forgiveness of our sins. And we're remembering who is bringing forgiveness and life and who our great high priest is and all of these things. You know, at the cross uh, on the, uh, uh, right behind me when I stand at the altar, the, the uh, gold cross that's up there, um, that has the same three letters on it, um, reminding us of, of, of Jesus. And, and so there, there are, you know, little things like that. But, um, yeah, the X. Um, this kind of this is something that uh, classical literature liked to do. I think that sometimes people will continue to do this today, um, but uh, it, it. I think it's important for us to understand when we read the Bible that this this is a real work of literature as well. You know, there's incredible art and. Um, uh, Great thought 
went into this in terms of how are we going to present this. And Paul, as a um, Pharisee, and also as one who was raised in Greek culture, because his dad was a Gentile, uh, he is somebody who is very uh, informed in terms of how to communicate among Jews, but he's also very informed in how to communicate in, a, uh, in proper rhetoric for a uh, Gentile uh, population. And this is, this is a display of that. So when we read this through, he has put some key words in these different parts of, the, uh, of, these, of this chapter. So when we read verses 6 through 9, uh, he talks about the word and Israel and the seed, uh, children of God and what it means to be called. And, and then if you jump to the end there where it says 926, the key words, to be called sons or children of God. Israel, word, seed. Uh, you know, in the next section there, 9 and 10 through 13, he talks about to call and to love. In 24 and 25, he talks about to call and to love. And then in the, in the middle there, in, in 14 through 18, he talks about to show mercy and to will. And then in 19 through 23, he reverses it to will and talks about mercy. So just, uh, you know, it, it's, it's worth noting, I think, that uh, he lays this thing out because he's making an argument and he's trying to present something to you so that you can hear it, understand it, and believe it. Yeah? I'm confused about the X and this artistic. Is it the number of words forms an X? No, it's, it's the way that, um, if you think about uh, the, the way that it would lay out, it, we would probably think of it as a, you know, a, a less, a greater than sign. You know, you know, so you start here and you work your way from that point to this point to this point, and then you're repeating this point and you're working your way back out, you know, and that's kind of like half of the X. Um, so, yeah, and it's not, sometimes they do it in terms of the number of the words that they're using too that you go from a bigger section and you're actually kind of funneling out. That's what I thought it was. But I don't think that this actually does this in terms of the word count. Okay. So, um, Romans 9, 6 through 8. Paul continues, he says, Now it was not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. So, getting through verse 6 here, it's not as though the word of God has failed. I mentioned that you know, Paul knows how to communicate to a Jewish audience. And a big part of that is because he is a Pharisee, he is deeply um, uh, steeped in God's word. Pharisees were required to memorize the first five books of the Bible. You know, like word for word tested on being able to, you know, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You know, this, the chronological snobbery thing that I talked about earlier, you know, sometimes we look at people of the past and we're like, they were so dumb. They didn't have iPhones. <laughs> These are people who memorized hundreds of chapters, you know, and, and today it's like, Genesis, what comes after Genesis? Um, it, it, our memories are so short. Would they have memorized it in, the, in Hebrew? In Hebrew, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, but I mean, that's kind of fair, right? Because that was the... Uh, no, that's not a complaint. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if you're wondering, no, I did not. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, and, and so, because he is steeped in the, the scriptures, uh, there, there's something interesting, I think, that's going on here. When he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. The word that's translated failed can also mean fall. You can see where those two words would be connected. It fell or it failed. Same type of an idea. But this is the same word in the Septuagint's translation of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 7 through 8. So first of all, what is the Septuagint? Um, between, uh, was it 350? Uh, 250 and 150 B.C., a group of Jewish scholars in Egypt translated the Old Testament into Greek. So there's a couple of things that are really significant about this. You know, these are Jewish men. There are 70 of them. That's why, you know, 70 is the number in Septuagint means 70. Um, but these are people who believe this word, who are deeply committed to the word, and they're, for the first time, bringing it into a different language. How much care are they going to take in those translations? A lot, yeah. Now the story goes that all 70 of them went off into different rooms and they translated, they brought it back together. Lo and behold, they all matched. I suspect that that might not be true. <laughs> but you know, the work that they did is incredibly important as this uh, message of the, the Old Testament scriptures is now engaging in a whole new way Gentile believers. And for many Gentile believers, that's their Old Testament because Greek was the, the language of the time. You know, even though it's the Roman Empire, you know, Latin would be their language, they still conduct everything in Greek. And so, you know, any educated Roman is going to be able to read Greek as well as Latin. And so now, when they're going to be thinking about what about the Christ, what about the Messiah, what about, what about, what about, the Old Testament that they're going to is this Septuagint. And in this Septuagint, this passage uh, from Isaiah chapter 40, that says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, the flowers fall when the breath of the Lord blows on them indeed the people are grass the grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God remains forever they're going to a, a Jewish person who you know is familiar with that or a Gentile person who's familiar with that passage it's the same word 
And Paul is very familiar with the Septuagint. And all through the, the New Testament, he's quoting that translation of the Old Testament. It's a reference to what he's saying here. He's, it's not that the word of God has fallen. It's not, it's not like this grass that, you know, the breath of God and it falls, it dies. No, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God remains forever. And that's where he's starting from. It's not that the word has fallen. The word of God remains. It stands. It's strong. It's doing its work. And this brings us to a key principle when we start talking about the scriptures. And this, this was really pounded into me in college and seminary. This principle that says that scripture interprets scripture. If you don't understand something in one scripture passage, what does the rest of the scripture say? How does that inform what this passage is saying? You know, God's word interprets his own word. And, and this, this means that being very familiar with the Bible is important for understanding the Bible. To know what God's word says in Genesis or, or the Messianic prophecies, this is going to help us to understand the Gospels. Or you know, it's going to help us to understand the epistles, Paul's letters. How about this for a crazy thought? If you know Daniel really well, it's going to help you to understand Revelation. Because it's all one book. It's all connected. You know, and so as, as we look at these things, you know, it's like, well, how do I understand what he's, be, what, what he's saying here? Well, he's referring to something out of the, the Old Testament. And, and one of the really important places that I... You know, again, confession, I, I, th I feel that I probably neglect, um, and I fear that a lot of us do, um, is Psalms. So much of the New Testament comes from Psalms as they're quoting the, the scriptures. And if you have this just really great familiarity, you're going, you're going to start, oh, that's this. Oh, that's a reference to that. You know, and it starts to kind of tie together. You know, and I mean, the Old Testament is really valuable to us, even just in the sense that it's a picture of the life of the faithful. If I can be so bold, I think that this is where Paul is heading. He's going to say that people of the Old Testament are Christians. Not because they believe Jesus died and rose for them, but they believed that the Christ would come and save them. They lived in light of the promise of Christ. It's just one continuum, and we're part of it. You know, and, and so, you know, the Old Could Testament, I, it's foundational. It's, it's so important for us to know. Yeah, Larry. That's a concept I've never heard before, and it's incredibly important, this completeness and connection that it's really not Old Testament and New Testament. It's God's Word all kind of integrated to be a, use a modern term, which is a, I think an incredible thought. I mean, that um, 
really important. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and that old and new, it, it's kind of a false dichotomy. And it's kind of hard for us because we were so steeped in that type of language. But it would probably be better for us to just refer to it as the scriptures. Right. And, and not distinguish. Because it's, it's all, you know, from the same God. And it's all, you know, refers to Jesus. Jesus himself says that, right? He, he tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have salvation. Did you know they talk about me? I mean, that's my you know, paraphrase of it. But, uh, you know, these speak of me. And so when, when yeah, that's, that's, yeah, the, the message according to, yeah. Um, so when we read the Old Testament, I put square, square quotes on that. Look for Jesus. Because Jesus himself says, these are about me. Now, maybe that might be hard for us to understand. You know, you know we look at some of these things and, and we're like, well, I, I'm, these are weird things going on here. How does that all... Maybe it's just about sinners who are struggling to walk by faith in this promise that the Savior will come. I mean, can you resonate with that? That these are people living according to a promise? Because you've received a promise, right? Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is coming again. He's going to raise the dead. Uh, I haven't experienced any of those, well, in the fullness yet. They're all promised. And the fullness comes when Jesus returns. Even the sacrifices have been fulfilled. Yeah. These are pictures of what's to come, right? Yeah. And they're fulfilled in Christ on the cross. This is why Hebrews is such an important book for us. Um, you know, this, this whole great high priest thing. Yeah. You know, the, the, the priests of the Old Testament, they sacrifice, they sacrifice, they sacrifice. The blood atones, the blood atones. And here's Jesus who sheds his blood and atones for our sins. It's all pointing ahead. And, and that's one of the reasons it's so significant that we don't offer sacrifices anymore. One perfect final sacrifice has been given. Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And that's why we put altars that are completely non-functional in front of our churches. Because altars are for sacrifices, burning sacrifices. If you burn a sacrifice on our altar, you're going to burn down the altar and the church. The other thing that's kind of interesting about a lot of altars, um, when you look at the, uh, the shape of them, that kind of large rectangle, um, they are uh, shaped like a, a cemetery vault. You know, the idea is that's the body of Christ. He died for us. And yet he lives and he delivers forgiveness and salvation to us. Um, so, uh, you know, reading the, the old, oh, before I forget, uh, in the new year, I am going to put together a, uh, a plan to read through the entire Bible again. Um, some people might choose to just do the New Testament. Um, it, it, it's been a while since I've, I've read everything. Um, and uh, so I want to make that one of my 
New Year's resolutions. Um, and uh, you know, so if you're interested in that, uh, there will be a sign-up sheet, and I'll share the plan, and you know, probably talk about some of what I'm I'm reading and stuff like that from time to time. He continues. He says, um, "Not all who descended from Israel are Israel." And this tells us that you know, Paul is using the word Israel to refer to two different groups of people. He, he does not use it the same way in all circumstances. And so on the one hand, he's talking about ethnic Israel. You know, people who genetically descended from Abraham and his family. Actually, you got to go a couple generations beyond that to Jacob and his family. Because there are other descendants from Abraham that are not part of Israel. Um, and so there's this ethnic Israel and there's also this, this spiritual Israel. Isn't that the same as today? Yes. I mean, we know, I don't know a lot, but I, I often run into Jewish people who are Jewish, but they don't, they're not, they don't go to the temple or they go to synagogue, so. Right. You know, and so then, you know, the question becomes, what makes a person Israel? Right. And, you know, before people start to say, well, Paul is making a distinction that it's not made elsewhere here. Remember that John the Baptist, when speaking to, you know, the authorities that came to him to question him about baptism, <coughs> he says to them, do not begin to say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. <coughs> and that's the message of the gospel, that God has raised up children for Abraham outside of Abraham's genetic descendants. So the heart of the issue between Israel and Israel is this relationship with God, not their relationship to Abraham or to Isaac or to Jacob a.k.a. Israel. You know, when you read uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Abraham believed God and God credited it, cred, credited it to him as righteousness. We talked about that passage in Romans 4, verse 3, because Paul quotes it and he's already recognizing that there's a difference, that this relationship with God is about faith. And that's essential for understanding when we get to the end of this section uh, that all Israel will be saved. Well, wait a minute. What about... what? A... He's not talking about ethnically. He is talking about everyone who believes as Abraham did in God's salvation. So for next week, and I probably should have put a little bit more in here because uh, it's not just um, um, uh, it's not just Abraham and Sarah that we need to talk about next week. Uh, we also need to get into um, Jake or uh, into uh, Isaac and Rebecca a little bit as well. But if you would at least take a look at Genesis 21, 1 through 21, and then uh, also Genesis 25, 1 through 18. Um, if you want to take a look at the stuff about uh, Jacob and Esau, uh, Isaac and Rebekah um, in Genesis, you know, just to kind of refresh your memory, uh, that would be good. Um, because these next two verses are heavily steeped 
in Genesis. Um, other than that, think about what is uh, one insight, something to challenge you um, from this session, something that you want to hold on to, um, and then uh, um, spend a little time thinking about the lessons that you, uh, you learned that might impact your faith. And I think we need to wrap up with prayer. Unless there's any quick comments, questions? All right. Father in heaven, we thank you that we could be here today. We pray that you would bless us as we go our way. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would be in us to give us strong faith to trust in Jesus and his promises and to, to believe all that you have said to us in the scriptures. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,